On May 28th, 2016, a marvelous thing happened. Maybe marvelous isn't the right word. Some people called it an outrage. Some people said it was a horrible, horrible loss. Some people said it was a tragedy. But even a tragedy can be marvelous. The story began when a three-year-old little boy looked longingly into a pool of water at the Cincinnati Zoo. He looked to his mother, like three-year-old boys often do, and said, I'm going to go into that water. And his mother responded, as mothers often do, no, you are not. But a few moments later, as his mother was distracted by her other children, he climbed the fence and went into the gorilla enclosure anyways. The images and the videos of the event were terrifying. A young boy furiously dragged across a shallow stream by an irate gorilla named Harambe. The shrill screams of onlookers and the desperate attempts to console a terrified toddler. The knowledge that a, a little boy was at the mercy of a beast strong enough to crush a coconut in the palm of his hand. And then the zoo officials acted. Within moments, Harambe the gorilla was shot and killed by a special team at the Cincinnati Zoo. Now, now in some ways, we've become desensitized to the death of animals, haven't we? Uh, animals die to put them out of their misery. They, they, they die for food. But Harambe was killed for neither. Harambe... His death was marvelous, not because he died, but because of why he died. He died so that a little boy might live. But some would ask, why use such extreme measures to save the boy? Why would the Cincinnati Zoo stand by such extreme measures, the use of lethal force, even under extreme scrutiny, even now, five years later. Because whether they realized it or not, the zookeepers knew what our snake-eyed enemy has been denying for millennia. The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve are not subject to the beasts of the field, for we are made in the image of God. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're in week two of a mini-series on five divine distinctions from Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The intent here is to give you five crucial building blocks for a Christian worldview to help you to learn how to look at life with your Christian glasses on, to understand reality the way that God would have you to understand it. Last week, we looked at the first distinction, the distinction between the creator and the creation. This morning, we'll look at the second distinction between humanity and all other creatures. I want, to, I want us to read a few verses from our text again, and then we're going to answer two questions this morning. What does this mean, and why does it matter? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. 
after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does this mean? I want to suggest to you that there's at least three truths that we can glean from this divine distinction between humanity and the rest of creation. Number one, and this is self-evident, I hope, but number one, God created man in his image. You see that in verse 26? God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Four times, image, likeness, image, image. We were created to image God. But what what does that mean? Like a mirror reflects your image, or or, or like a a Caesar would put his image on a coin to, to show his reflection. We are, in some sense, created to reflect, to image, to display something about God. It's part of why we exist. Now, the question then is, what is it about humanity that images God? What is it that's unique about us that causes us to be image bearers of God? What specifically reflects or displays who God is like? There's been a number of debates about this throughout the the, the millennia among Christians. A number of different suggestions have been offered. We'll just talk about some of these. One is that humanity is uh, moral. We're moral creatures, so, so we care about right and wrong, about good and evil. Six years ago, there was a supposedly popular lion named Cecil that was killed in Zimbabwe. And when Cecil the lion was killed in Zimbabwe, the public outcry was even greater than that which happened after Harambe, the silverback gorilla, was killed at the Cincinnati Zoo. Uh, The hunter that killed Cecil the lion uh, faced uh, physical threats, assaults, uh, threats of assault against his family. It was so bad that he even had to shut down his dental practice because of the threats and assaults that were coming against him for killing a lion. Why? Because those that were standing up for Cecil the lion believed that to kill a beloved lion like Cecil was to commit an act of pure evil. Now, I don't know enough about big game trophy hunting to know if this dentist uh, broke any laws or not when he killed Cecil the lion. That's beside the point. But here's what I do know. The lion community has yet to issue a statement about the death of Cecil the lion. It's humans that care about evil. It's humans that care about right and wrong, about good and evil. Animals don't. We're moral creatures. Another distinction is that humans are spiritual. We, 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 are, we are worshipers. Now, now, all throughout the animal kingdom, you will find creatures that, that build things. Uh, for instance, there's, a, uh, there's a, a hive of yellow jackets that built a nest in my backyard and stung me seven times a couple of weeks ago. There are beavers that build dams. There's uh, spiders that build webs and birds that build nests. 
But listen, you'll never find a critter in the animal kingdom building a mosque or a synagogue or a church or an altar or a chapel. Why? Because even though they are doing exactly what God created them to do, they are not cognizant of the fact that they are worshipers or spiritual like we are. We're spiritual beings, unlike the animal kingdom. Uh, humans are judicial. We care about justice. Last week, I told you about Happy the Elephant. Remember Happy? Happy the Elephant is um, in prison in the Bronx Zoo. And uh, animal rights activists are currently, as we speak, preparing, to, uh, uh, preparing for an appeal trial at the New York State Court of Appeals to plead for Happy the Elephant's release and for the recognition of his rights as a person. Because animals are people too. Now, here's the thing. Happy the Elephant didn't tell anybody to do this. Happy the Elephant didn't hire the attorneys. And when Happy the Elephant goes to court, he will not, or she will not rather, will not appear before a jury of her peers. It will not be a jury of elephants or an elephant judge that decides Happy's case. Why? Because animals don't care about justice. Humans do. We're created in the image of God. There's much more that we could say that sets us apart from the animal kingdom. We're relational to a much greater extent than animals are. We care about friends and family. We're aesthetical. We care about beauty and taste. We're rational. We care about reason and truth. Now, all these things are true, and all of them set us apart from the animal kingdom, but none of them really get to the heart of what it means to be made in the image of God. In his book, Reenchanting Humanity, uh, Owen Strand writes this about the image of God. He says, it's not fundamentally a trait or attribute. It's not a quality which may wax or wane in a human person. The image is not dependent on a rationality-nurturing environment, for the image does not reduce to intelligence or powers of reason. The image is not inhibited by physical de deficiencies, for the image does not derive from a certain bodily state. The image is not unlocked when a person gets married, for the image does not flow from personal relationship. Neither can we say that the image is lost or obscured or marred or in any way compromised by the fall of Adam as deformative as the fall is. Mankind is made in the image of God. The human race may recognize, celebrate, hate, or ignore this truth. It matters not. The human race is the race made to display the glory of God in all the earth in a special way. The human race reflects and represents the person of God even after the fall. One person is no more an image bearer than any other." End quote. Here's what he's saying. To be an image bearer of God is not something that you can partially be or potentially be. It is wrapped up in everything that you are. You are an image bearer of God. Second truth this morning. This is true of both genders. This is true of both genders. Now, that sentence on the screen behind me is highly controversial. Um, just a couple of years ago, 
The Times in London reported that a series of films for middle school students in Britain was teaching that there are at least 100 different genders. So, like I said, highly controversial. Now, from the beginning of the Bible, we're taught that there is male and female. We're going to dive more into this next week. But, but this is also controversial in a different way because there are some that would call themselves Christians, and I wouldn't necessarily doubt their faith, but some that are Christians that would try to argue that only man and not woman, women are created in the image of God. I had a conversation years ago with a friend at Southern Seminary when I was a student there, and he told me that when he finished his master's degree, he was going to get a PhD. And I said, okay, that's cool. I'm a nerd. So I started asking questions. What are you going to write on? What's your dissertation going to be about? And he said, I'm going to write about my belief that only men, not women, are created in the image of God. And I said, what? And he took me to Genesis 127. Look at it again. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Aha, he said. Notice, God made man in his image. God created him in his image. Now, here's the massive problem with my friend's interpretation of that verse. In verse 27, when the Bible says God created man, he created him, that both words there are referring generically to the entire human race, and then the latter half of the verse is referring specifically to male and female. You say, prove it. Go to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 5 and look in the middle of verse 1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. He named them man, humanity. It's the generic word for the human race. So, all of us, every human being, male, female, everyone is created in the image of God. Here's why this is so crucial. Christians have often been accused of denigrating or mistreating women. And there have been instances where sadly, horrifically, demonically, that has been true. But always when that happens, it's because we're not being Christian enough. The problem is not the doctrine that the Bible teaches. It's our failure to live up to it. The Bible clearly and consistently teaches that men and women are different in form and function, but equal in dignity and value. Even in the earliest days of the church, this was known to be true. There's a man named Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, and he wrote a letter to a friend. And he talked about how Christians were those that shared everything but their wives. See, in those days, it was common for, for a man to swap his wife with someone else because she was just property. But Tertullian says, we don't do that. We treat them with respect. We love them. Both genders are created in the image of God. Number three, third truth. What does it mean? This is only true. This is only true of humanity. This is only true of humanity. If you notice verse 26, humanity has dominion over fish, 
birds, livestock, every creeping thing. Verse 29, we also have dominion over the plant kingdom as well. So, so the point is that humanity is distinct. We're set apart from every other created thing. There's something special about us. Now, the world would look at you today, they would hear that and say, that's just speciesism. That's what it's called, to elevate the human race above any other species. Well, you can call it that if you want to, but it's grounded in our theology. This is what the Bible teaches, that we alone are image bearers of God. We have dominion. This doesn't mean we mistreat the earth. We'll talk about that later. But it does mean that we are distinct. We are set apart from every other created thing. Let me show this to you as well in Genesis chapter 9. So if you want to turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 3. Um, the world has grown increasingly sinful. God sent a flood. Noah and his family were saved. They land the ark, and God kind of recommissions Noah with, with kind of a, a new set of instructions, just like he gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning. And listen to what he says in Genesis 9, 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Notice what God is saying to Noah after the fall, by the way. To take the life of a human being, that's murder. Not to take the life of a plant or to take the life of an animal for food. Meat is not murder, dear brother, sister, friend. There was an article years ago, it was kind of an extreme example of, of oneism, which we talked about last week, that suggested that even to eat something like a sugar snap pea would be to take the life of a living thing. Now, my suggestion is you can't say that sort of thing for very long before you don't have any breath left. But notice there's a distinction. Even after the fall, in Genesis 9, God says to take the life of humanity, that is murder. But not to take the life of plants or animals. We are set apart. We are distinct. Although all of God's creatures are precious in His sight, humans are set apart because we alone are made in the image of God. As I was studying this, the, the one objection that kept coming to mind was, well, what about angels? What about angels? Are angels made in the image of God, or, or are angels kind of superior to human beings? Um, the verse that I opened with this morning, Psalm chapter 8, let me read verses 4 and 5. The text says, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. Now that verse at face value seems to indicate that angels are, are, they're number one. They're God's greatest creation and we're just a little bit lower than them, forever stuck at number two. But the author of Hebrews comes along and he helps us to understand where that verse was ultimately pointing. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says after quoting Psalm 8, 4, and 5. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Namely, Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So Hebrews tells us that Psalm 8 is pointing to Christ. Jesus made himself a little bit lower than the angels for a season so that he could die on a cross for you. But now, now, Christian, angels long to look into what we experience as the family of God. There is coming a day when God's people will judge even the angels, Scripture says. We alone are image bearers of God. So why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why does this doctrine matter? Let me, again, give you three reasons. Number one, it gives unique value to human life. I don't know of any doctrine or theory in any religion or worldview in all of human history that has greater potential to value human life than the Imago Dei, this doctrine of us being created in the image of God. I was just um, in the car the other day talking with my wife, Holly, and uh, we were talking about uh, this doctrine, the image of God, and I just said, man, I love being a Christian. I love being a Christian. And one of the reasons why I love being a Christian is because after all the other worldviews that I've, I've studied and looked into, none of them can have a clear and consistent reason why human life, all human life matters. But Christianity does because of the doctrine of imago dei, that we are created in the image of God. This doctrine means that every human life has value from the womb to the tomb. So the unborn have value. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might know or have heard that Christians, at least for the past few decades, have faithfully opposed abortion in this country. And perhaps you're, you're confused about that. You might think that we do that just because we're aligned a certain way politically. That's not the reason at all. The reason why we believe that, that life is precious even in the womb is because we believe that in that womb is an image bearer of God. We believe that that's a real person, not a potential image bearer or a potential life, but that is image bearer. Those are image bearers of God. And so as Christians, we ought to consistently stand against surgical abortions, against chemical abortions, things like the plan B, morning after. We ought to stand against reproductive technologies that would force uh, fertilized eggs, embryos, to be stuck in, in storage somewhere in a freezer. Right now, there's estimated one million frozen embryos in the United States alone, every single one of them a complete image bearer of God, frozen in a freezer somewhere in a laboratory. The unborn has value. Women have value. Holly and I were in Virginia Beach the other day, and we drove past the Planned Parenthood Clinic and we saw a protest sign outside the clinic, and it was a silhouette of a pregnant woman, and it said at the top, love them both. Love them both. Listen, that's what Christians are called to do. We love the image bearer of God whose life is being snuffed out in that clinic, and we love 
the woman going in to take that life. And by the way, we love the doctor that's taking it. Why? Because every single one of them is an image bearer of God. Do you see how only Christianity can help us with this? Men have value. It's pretty common these days to talk about how awesome women are, but men don't get a lot of press these days. In fact, if you're a man, you might feel that you're kind of swept under the rug or thrown under the bus quite often. Like uh, a French feminist author who wrote a book recently entitled, I Hate Men. Listen to what the book description says. What if mistrusting men, disliking men, and yes, maybe even hating men is in fact a useful response to sexism? What if such a response offers a way out of oppression? a means of resistance? What if it even offers a path to joy, solidarity, and sisterhood? Can I answer all those rhetorical questions? It doesn't do any of those things. It's another type of oppression. It's another type of slavery. You're a slave, once again, to what you hate. Now, ladies in this room, it could be you're in this room and you have been maliciously mistreated by some man in your life. You are right to hate what he did, but do not hate your brothers categorically. We are image bearers of God. Men, you matter. It might be in a world that doesn't say you matter very much, but you matter. Jesus came like or as a man. He came as a man. You matter. Your life matters. He shows us what masculinity looks like, and it isn't toxic either. The elderly have value. A few years ago, the, the, France, the finance minister of Japan, a guy named Taro Aso, said that the elderly should hurry up and die. They were called two people and tax burdens. And the, the best thing for the elderly to do, in his words, were to just go ahead and die so they're not a drain on the economy. Now, few people would admit anything like that in public today in our country, but often we act like we believe that's true. I was appalled during some of the shutdowns over the past year of COVID-19, the way that some of our elderly were treated, the way that they were denied normal human interaction. That is inhumane, and it's wrong, and it's no way to treat an image bearer of God. The disabled have value. In 2017, news broke out of Iceland that that small little European country had nearly eradicated Down syndrome. The truth underneath the headlines was far more ominous. ominous. Iceland did not eradicate the disease, but the diseased. The reason why Down syndrome rates were close to 0% in Iceland is because almost 100% of babies diagnosed with Down syndrome were killed in utero. Why? Because their life is less precious because it might be a life with suffering, a life with special needs. Do you see how how Christianity speaks into this and cuts right through this and says, no, this life matters. It's not the intelligence or the ability or the physical strength of of a human life that makes it valuable. 
It's valuable because it's human life. All ethnicities have value. The Bible teaches that there is one race, the human race, different ethnicities, different cultures, different colors, different backgrounds, all those things are true. But the Bible teaches that we are all made in the image of God. And any belief, any behavior that elevates one race, one ethnicity over another, or pushes another one down is absolutely demonic. It's denying the image of God. The distinction between humanity and every other created thing means that every human life has value. Can I just suggest to you that where Christianity has been faithful, it has always valued the least of these. In the second century, a Greek philosopher named Celsus mocked Christians. And here's what he said to mock Christians. He said, they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children. He looked into a Christian second century church service and he said, just a bunch of women and children and disabled people and intellectually inferior people in there. That's not the religion for me. Can I tell you something? Christianity, faithful Christianity, has always loved the least of these. Always. Now, let's be honest. There have been times when Christians have messed up royally. There have been times when we have, in the name of Christ, in the name of Christianity, we have horribly, demonically mistreated image bearers of God. But again, the problem every single time is always that we're not being Christian enough. I would say the, the greatest area where people would accuse us of not loving fellow image bearers today would be in the way that we think and believe about those that would consider themselves LGBTQ+. You deny my identity, you're excluding me, therefore you're not valuing me. Can I just suggest to you that every single community excludes people? Every community excludes people. You say, no, they don't. Yes, they do. If you wanted to join the board of Black Lives Matter and you were a avowed white supremacist, do you think they'd let you in? They shouldn't. Do you think that a, a fundamentalist, right-wing, Baptist, KJV-only, Baptist preacher would be welcomed onto the board of a, a branch of Planned Parenthood? Probably not. Why? Because every, every community excludes people. Christianity is no different. We exclude. Here's the real question if a community is loving or not. is not do we exclude people, but how do we treat those whom we exclude? What does Jesus say? Love your what? Enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Christians are called to love even those who hate us the most because they're made in the image of God. Second reason why it matters. It puts the rest of creation in perspective. If you understand this distinction between humanity and the rest of creation, it puts everything else into perspective. This does not mean we don't care about animals or nature. Having dominion over the, the birds of the air or, or the fish of the sea doesn't mean you get to mistreat them and do whatever you want with them. Um, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says this, 
Man was appointed by God to have dominion over the beast, and everything a man does to an animal is either a lawful exercise or a sacrilegious abuse of an authority by divine right. We have dominion over all the rest of creation, but we must steward it well. This, putting it in perspective, it means that we don't value animal life above human life. In the most extreme backlash against the deaths of Harambe and Cecil the Lion, people were, were literally giving death threats to image bearers of God. That's valuing animal life above human life. You say, well, that human was despicable. He's an image bearer of God. She's an image bearer of God. Or let's maybe get a little bit closer to home, brother, sister, friend. You can love your dog. You can love your cat. You can love your goldfish. You can love your turtle, your hamster, whatever it is you have at home. But you dare not treat them with greater respect than the person that cuts you off on the highway. They are image bearers of God. This distinction helps us put creation in perspective because we, we, we don't value the environment above human life either. We have a responsibility to steward the environment well. I might disagree on what that looks like. That's a discussion for a different day. But we don't value environmental life more than we value human life. Uh, last week, I, I briefly mentioned the birth striker movement. It's a rapidly growing movement among young women who refuse to have children until the climate crisis is resolved. You might think that's just some sort of fad. I assure you it's not. I, I remember in 2003, as a college student at the uh, ultra-right-wing, fundamentalist, conservative Christian college, Bob Jones University, and I had a roommate who said to me that he did, when he got married, he would not have children for this very reason. Um, just... just um, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, a reporter for Vogue basically published this entire article apologizing for having a baby because she knew that it was pure environmental vandalism to have a child. So after the sermon last week, I talked a little bit more about this with uh, Seth Figures, and he asked a great question. He said, are women really valuing planet life more than human life? if they refuse to have kids due to climate concerns? Uh, couldn't it just be the responsible thinking? They're refusing to bring into a child into a world filled with so much suffering. I, I told them the problem was with their assumptions. They believe that a healthy planet is better than a suffering human. That's not true. I want you to listen to that again. A suffering human is better than even a healthy planet. Why? Because humans are made in the image of God. Again, none of this means we, we, we don't take steps to steward the environment well, but we must reject any attempt to do that that would sacrifice or harm or hurt human life. Much of the proposals on dealing with climate change would absolutely wreck the third world. It would destroy them. Send them into utter poverty, starvation, and chaos. We ought to reject anything that would value planetary, you know, planet environmental life above human life. Third reason why this distinction matters. It highlights our mission. It highlights our mission. In a few weeks when this sermon series is done, we're going to begin a 
exciting project and study the Gospel of Matthew together. And uh, we might be in here until your kids graduate high school, those of you with kids in the nursery. Um, Matthew's a long book with a ton of stuff. It's going to be great. I'm excited. I've been walking through it with our kids at home just to kind of prepare my own heart and mind for the sermon series. And uh, we're in Matthew chapter 9 right now, just walking through it in our family worship time. And and one of the things we just keep talking about is, man, Jesus loves people. Watch Jesus. Read the gospel. This man loves people. Blind people, deformed people, leprous people, people that everybody pushed away. He treated them with the dignity of touch. Jesus loves people. Why? Because we're made in his image. Listen to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is confronted by a lawyer who wants to know what are the greatest commandments in the law. And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Two greatest commandments. Love and worship faithfully the God of the universe. Number two, treat his image bearers with love and respect. Can I, can I just say something to you? If you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you should want this to be true, even if you don't believe it. There is nothing, there is nothing in all religions and all worldviews and all philosophies that elevates your value like this. An image bearer of God that whispers and galaxies appear. That's who you are, if this is true. So this highlights our mission then, doesn't it? Christians in the room, this is why we're here. To to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. As a church, together, corporately, we we love our neighbor first and foremost by faithfully making disciples, by shepherding sinners from lost to leader. That's why we're here. That's what we do. Everything we do is, is geared around that. But you, as an individual Christian, you love your neighbor by doing all you can to seek his or her good. I love the way John Piper puts it. He says, we care about all suffering now, especially eternal suffering later. So listen, if you've got a job that allows you to care for the sick, care for them because they're image bearers of God. If if your job is to pick up the trash cans and throw them in the truck every single week, you make sure you get every single piece of trash in that truck. Why? Because image bearers of God live in that house. And you treat them with love and respect. If you wait tables at a restaurant or you stand at a cashier and you take orders all day, you love those people and you smile at them and you treat them with respect because every single one of them, even the one that cusses you out because there's no more napkins in the lobby, true story, even that person, you love them because they're image bearers of God. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Within hours after his death in 2016, Harambe became a pop culture icon. He's been featured on more internet memes than Homer Simpson himself. He's had his photo emblazoned on t-shirts, hoodies, and even ugly Christmas sweaters. A few years ago, this is a true story too, a Cheeto that shaped 
kind of looked like Harambe, sold for $100,000 on eBay. That's one expensive Cheeto. But if you move past some of the silliness, you'll find there, there are people that were seriously or are seriously heartbroken about the loss of a gorilla named Harambe. Uh, universities all over the country held candlelight vigils to, to mourn his death. Now listen, listen to me. I want you to hear me clearly. Although we, we, we would wish that there would be similar outrage or grief over the death of the unborn or the mistreatment of the vulnerable, we ought to understand why someone would be saddened by the death of such a majestic creature. It's another reminder that we live in a fallen world, a world that's corrupted by sin, a world where death and decay defile everything it touches, even a silverback gorilla. So cry a tear if you must. Then crack a smile and raise a hand in worship, not because a gorilla is dead, but because the image of God is not. Maybe you say, well, shouldn't the zoo be held accountable? Or what about the parents? Aren't there consequences for their negligence? Is there no justice? Yes, there's justice. But it's often not found in the corridors of the Cincinnati Zoo or the courtrooms of Ohio. Justice is found in another senseless death. It's found at the scene of another murder. It's found in the story of another marvelous tragedy where someone else died so that others might live. It's found at the blood-soaked base of a rough-hewn cross. Justice and mercy are found where one far greater than a trillion silverback gorillas or humans, Jesus Christ himself, was willingly slain so that you and I might live. That's the good news that we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26 says, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is meant to be a, a, a celebration. Uh, there are certainly somber moments to this, but this is a celebration that, that Christ was, was not some hapless victim but he laid his life down so that all who repent and believe in him can have everlasting life. That's what we celebrate when we take communion together. Today we're going to return to the format for communion that was normal around here before the days of COVID-19. And we're going to do this in, in kind of three different moments, if you will. First, there'll be a moment for you and your relationship with the Lord. We'll give you some time in just a moment to, to pray silently and prepare your heart to take communion. We'd encourage you to confess sin and known sin in your life if you haven't already done that. If you need to, confess it to others. Maybe that even means getting up and finding someone and asking them if you can go away for just a few moments to confess something to them. But then it means also praising him for his grace that he chose to set his affection on you, that he would die for you. There'll be a Jesus and others moment. You'll come to the table when you're ready. One of our pastors will pray over you at one of these tables. And you'll eat the bread in a small group of friends and family. 
You can go with some people around you, or if you came with just your husband, just your wife, just your kids, come as a family and take together. And then there will be a Jesus and everybody moment. As, as you, you'll take the bread at the table there after you're prayed for by one of our pastors, you'll take your cup back to your seat, and then we'll all take the cup together, remembering that we are one body in Christ. But more important than how we celebrate communion is why and who. Christians have believed for 2,000 years that this is a meal that symbolizes the death of Jesus Christ in our place. The bread represents his body. The, the cup represents his blood. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, your faith is in what Jesus did on the cross for you that day in Cal on Calvary, then we invite you to receive communion with joy. But if you're in this room and you have not put your faith in Jesus, we would ask you not to receive the symbol of Jesus, but to receive him. If you're in this room, and that's, I'm describing you right now, we would invite you to come to one of the tables and simply let one of the pastors know, if you'd like, hey, I'm not a Christian, but I want to talk to someone more about what it means to follow Jesus. Or if you choose, you can remain in your seat if you don't want to do that today. But we would ask you simply this, if you don't have Jesus, don't take communion. If your faith is in him, receive it with joy. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to bow your heads and prepare your hearts for communion. I'm going to ask uh, our elders to come and prepare themselves at the table. And, and by the way, I neglected to mention it earlier, but to my far right, there is a self-service table. If you would rather not be in a small huddle with uh, one of our elders and with people around you, you're free to head to the far right, grab the bread and cup, and head back to your seat if you prefer but take a moment, if you will, and begin praying as uh, we prepare to take communion. And, and after I say amen, you'll have time to continue to pre uh, prepare your heart. And when you're ready, you can come up to any one of the tables and receive the Lord's Supper.